0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Good morning, everyone, and good afternoon or good evening for those of you who are joining from elsewhere. My name is Bill Bird. I'm a senior expert at the U.S. Institute of Peace, working on Afghanistan And I'm really pleased to have you here for this important discussion. Uh, USIP is happy to co-host today's program with the International Rescue Committee, the Norwegian Refugee Council, and CARE. And I would like to welcome, to thank them and the other NGOs who are working on the ground in Afghanistan and doing uh, difficult work under extremely difficult circumstances. And uh, thanks to the panelists for taking time out of their schedules to join us today for this public meeting. Uh, We invite both in-person and virtual audience to engage with us and with each other on Twitter throughout using the hashtag USIP Afghanistan. And we also invite you to take part in today's panel discussion after some uh, opening questions and follow-ups the, uh, those of you who are uh, connected virtually can ask questions in the chat box, while those of you who are here in person can fill out uh, the cards and, and ask questions. Please give your name and f- affiliation uh, when you do so, so we'll, we'll give you credit for those questions. We certainly can't promise to, to respond to all questions, but we'll certainly try to respond to some of them in the latter part of the meeting today. Well, as a peace-building institution, founded by the US Congress more than uh, 35 years ago, USIP has been actively engaged in Afghanistan since 2002. And even though so much has changed since August 2021, we are continuing to try to uh, pursue that important agenda. We're also very concerned and really want to draw attention to the extremely difficult humanitarian situation and ongoing economic crisis in Afghanistan, uh, and also to trying to develop uh, or propose uh, policy solutions to prevent further collapse and alleviate the impact on Afghans' lives and livelihoods. And recently, the humanitarian situation has only gotten more Worse, uh, more urgent, compounded by the Taliban's increasing restrictions against Afghan female staff in NGO working in NGOs and the UN, as well as, of course, the education bans, which I'm sure most of you are in the room are familiar with. And at the same time, donors' priorities are also changing, and lead, this leads to concerns about a steep drop in funding for humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. So we have a Esteemed panel of experts here t- with us today to discuss these issues and uh, how to move forward uh, to the extent possible. Uh, let me briefly introduce the panelists in the order in which they'll be speaking. Our first panelist is Khalid Payenda, he is director and co founder at the Institute of Development and Economic Affairs. Very nice. Uh, Akram Idea, and it uh, represents Afghan economists who are doing uh, serious analytical work on the current situation and the economy. He previously served as Acting Minister of Finance and other positions in Ministry of Finance, as well as working for the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, and International Monetary Fund. And he's published a variety of articles, which some of you may be familiar with. (laughs) Our second panelist is Samira Said Rahman. She is the Director of Policy, Advocacy, and Communications for the International Rescue Committee based in Kabul. And unlike Khalid and myself, I should emphasize that our two key panelists are, are actually coming and visiting from Kabul. Uh, she played a variety of roles working for a, uh, nearly a decade, including uh, uh, she worked f- as the uh, communications and international relations advisor to Afghanistan's electric utility, which, by the way, is, I would argue is one of the success stories uh, over time in the, in the last 20 years in corporatization uh, and, uh, and uh, regularization of its activities. And she also served as director of relations uh, of the president in, for the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, among other positions. And our final panelist is Melissa Cornet, pronounced correctly, more or less, okay. She is a researcher focused on gender issues based in Kabul since 2018, so quite a lot of experience encompassing both the Islamic Republic and the more recent uh, situation. And she spent five years working for local and international organizations to document and advocate on issues like women's economic empowerment, violence against women, women's participation in the humanitarian response, and the impact of the food crisis on women and girls. She is CARES humanitarian advocacy advisor and continues to work in Kabul and in the provinces. Prior to working in Afghanistan, she worked for human rights institutions such as uh, Human Rights Watch, F- uh, worldwide federation of human rights leagues, or the Leitner Center for International Law and Justice. Full, full disclosure, I'm an economist, so, so I'm not familiar with human rights, right? <laughs> uh, okay, so what we're gonna do is I'm gonna start with an initial question for each of the panelists, and then maybe some follow-up questions, and then during that time, we'll gather questions from the online audience as well as here, and we'll try to respond to, to some of them. So. Starting with uh, Khalid Pinda, I mean, Afghanistan is facing a humanitarian crisis, but underlying it are deep economic problems. And could you briefly outline what is happening in the Afghan economy, how it's affecting people's lives and livelihoods, what has led to the crisis, and what are the economic prospects? Please go ahead.
2: Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Bill. Uh, thanks to USIP for for this timely discussion on Afghanistan where spotlight might be shifting to other issues. Uh, I think it's important to bring attention and focus back to Afghanistan where a lot of people live in a very difficult uh, environment uh, uh, human rights wise but also economically. So just a recap of the last uh, 22 or uh, 23 months since the collapse of August in uh, 2021, one-third of the economy was wiped out overnight when $8 billion of aid was, was what withheld because of, of the collapse. And this meant that a budget where uh, two-thirds of it to half of it was financed by donors, but also similar amounts uh, going off budget, uh, could not be delivered, and it, it meant uh, uh, loss of livelihoods for uh, literally uh, 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 hundreds of thousands to to millions of uh, of, of people in in, in Afghanistan. Um, inflation uh, skyrocketed uh, because of the situation in Afghanistan, but globally, with 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 post-COVID uh, issues, with uh, basic uh, food. Items uh, and uh, peaking in July 2022 to 50% increase of year on year uh, to, on, on prices. Uh, people had difficulty accessing and withdrawing their limited meager funds that they had with the banking uh, institutions. You know, hundreds of dollars they could not because of of, of the issue with with liquidity. So um, and, and the desperation was. Uh, was, was at a, a high level. Uh, the situation has been uh, getting worse gradually. Uh, I'd, be in, uh, I'd be interested to, to hear from Samira and Melissa on, on what their take is. But uh, f- f- uh, from 18 million people in need of assistance in uh, mid-2021 to an estimated uh, 28 to 30 million right now, need humanitarian assistance is a dire, dire situation in any context, in any uh, context and time or place. Uh, uh, And uh, this one um, uh, statistic should give you of of the situation in, in, in Afghanistan private sector in afghanistan was in the last 20 years of uh, republic uh, was was developing it was thriving but there was a big weakness with it that it was all tied to to aid that was catering to international security forces but also international aid and with the cessation of uh, aid it abruptly came to a halt uh, private sector companies uh, resorted to their uh, uh, strategies of surviving, either by uh, stopping operations or temporarily uh, closing offices or laying off a lot of people or uh, introducing drastic reduction in wages, which has impacted um, many thousands of uh, of, of families. Uh, so the, the Taliban fiscal policy or budget has not been a lot of help to, to people because uh, when you look into to the numbers which are not public by the way uh, uh, most of their spending is going into building their Ministry of Interior or uh, defence. Around 50% of the numbers that I've seen of the latest budget goes to those places where they have uh, hired most of, of their uh, foot soldiers. Uh, uh, not a lot of money goes into uh, uh, services or health or education. Uh, so the fiscal policy has not been helping the the situation. Uh, instead, the uh, brutal regime of collecting taxes has been very tough on 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 uh, people, from formal taxes on say shopkeepers to informal uh, religious uh, uh, taxes and and the uh, countryside on 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 products uh, 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 agricultural uh, products has been uh, has been uh, making it difficult for for people the situation with uh, overall uh, financial uh, uh, institutions in Afghanistan being disconnected from the rest of the banking sector has not made it easier. Uh, sh- uh, cash consignments have to be physically shipped to, to Afghanistan and there have been limited uh, numbers of them. So the overall situation, while some may give out of context uh, probably uh, statistics that it's stabilizing, it's not stabilizing. If you look into it, it's a gradual decline and uh, people are, as I uh, Presented statistics are in a worse situation than than last year, and last year was worse than a year uh, before. And unless and until there is a engine to growth in Afghanistan, uh, it's very difficult to see a way out of this. Humanitarian assistance cannot sustain an economy, regardless of how big the size of it is. But you know, given the 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 situation in Afghanistan and overall context where there are other demands on international aid Uh, elsewhere in the world it's uh, uh, getting difficult to to sustain even the current levels of 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 aid to to Afghanistan so the overall situation unfortunately isn't isn't great what's been sustaining just to conclude has been the uh, humanitarian assistance that has been going to Afghanistan similarly remittances uh, remittances uh, uh, large amounts of remittances uh, my estimates around 800 million to a billion dollar from Afghans uh, to their families to their uh, ex colleagues to their uh, neighbors has been sustaining a lot of, of people and the third one so far had been the um, cultivation of poppy that that had farm gate uh, uh, revenues of around a billion dollar for farmers, which going forward with the ban, uh, if that's not replaced with any other alternative livelihood, is going to make the situation much worse. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Khaled. Uh, certainly the the numbers tell a, a dire picture. I think now I'd like to turn to uh, Samira Said Rahman for uh, Uh, the more ground-level perspective, your agency is deeply involved in delivering humanitarian assistance within within Afghanistan, and from your ground-level perspective, how do you see the humanitarian situation and outlook in the country beyond what shows up in the macroeconomic numbers which are really daunting? What are the human dimensions of this, what I would call, an ongoing tragedy?
0: Thank you, Bill, um, and thank you to the USIP for hosting us today. Um, as Hala just mentioned, the the numbers are are horrific. 28 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance. 15 million of those are facing acute food insecurity (IPC 3 levels). What this means, you know, needs are rising, but that's not to say that you know. Nothing has been done over the course of the last two years. International assistance, in terms of humanitarian aid, has helped us curb a famine during the past two years, which is why we need continued and sustained levels of humanitarian assistance to Afghanistan. And the poverty on the ground is visceral. For those of us who have been in Afghanistan for some time, it's visible, it's in your face. The lines of women outside the bakeries are increasing day by day. You walk around and you speak to the shopkeepers. There is a little shortage of actual food. Instead, the food is there. It's on the shelves, it's on the carts, but it's rotting because people do not have the means to purchase the food. Um, I was in Logar just before I traveled here. Um, As some of you may know, Logar is just an hour outside of Kabul. There, I met a woman in, who had been referred to a clinic that the IRC operates there. She said that this was, for, for the first time in her life, she was forced to receive cash support, humanitarian assistance. Um, as Khalid mentioned, you know, she's one of those examples. Her husband was working in the private sector for a private company, but with the worsening economy, was forced to be laid off, um, pushing her family more and more into poverty. And this is the story that you hear over and over again across the country. More and more of the middle class is falling into poverty. More and more of the middle class are losing the economic opportunities, their access to cash that they had in the past, and having to resort to humanitarian assistance. all of our organizations inside Afghanistan have had to scale up our work over the course of the last two years, not only because of the rising needs that Khalid mentioned, but also because of the cessation of violence having allowed us to access more of the country than we ever had access to before. We are now able to reach parts of the country that never received public services. Um, you know, I always give the example of Helmand. You know, we are now able to operate in in Sangin. We are able to operate in Garishk. These are areas that faced the brunt of the last 22 years of conflict, from aerial bombings to fighting between the Taliban and the ANA. We now have clinics that we have established in those areas. I have visited some of the community-based education program um, in the villages there. We are able to reach more and more clients um, across the country, for the IRC in particular, we are now reaching over 200,000 clients a week. Um, that is more than double the numbers that we had before 2021. Beyond that, you know, as Khaled just mentioned, humanitarian assistance is, is not the solution to Afghanistan's current problems. We need longer-term, sustainable development funding to address some of the core issues that are facing the Afghan people. NGOs like IRC, like CARE, and the many who are still operating inside Afghanistan have showcased that it is possible to implement programming in Afghanistan and in a principled way. Um, NGOs have proven that we can work, that we can find workarounds, and that despite restrictions, we are able to reach more and more people. But what is holding us back right now is not our ability to find ways to reach these communities. It is fundamentally a lack of funding. Um, And I think this is something that my colleagues and I will address um, in later questions.
1: Thank you very much. Uh... I don't know. <laughs> I, I expect, Melissa, you're not going to have particularly good news following these two dire presentations. But uh, particularly focusing on the gender issues that that you're, you've been uh, working on for the whole for your time in Afghanistan. I mean, women and girls are suffering disproportionately, and this reflects serious gender issues and problematic social policies on top of the very weak economy. And uh, as Samira just said, constraints on aid. So maybe uh, go into a little more specifics about how you and other NGOs are navigating uh, this difficult situation, and how you are able to continue to deliver critical assistance to Afghan women and girls, and what are the constraints you face? Thanks.
3: Thanks Thanks a lot for your question. Gender is definitely. At the core of uh, of the issues we are dealing with at the moment in Afghanistan. There are a few points, and the first one is, is definitely the extent to which Afghan women and girls are disproportionately affected by the crisis, the economic crisis, the food crisis. It's something that has been largely documented. At CARE we did a report last year on the impact of the food crisis, specifically on women and girls, showing, for example, uh, in times of food insecurity, how women and girls are the ones who have less access to food inside the household. Uh, there's these uh, social, cultural norms and perception, for example, that women and girls are not the ones leaving the home to to go work, unlike men and wom- men and boys, so they are systematically the one less prioritised in terms of access to food. They are also suffering much more from negative coping mechanism and one of them that has been largely covered by the media is the rise in child marriage. Um, we've been encountering a horrific situation when we meet families, that are faced with the impossible choice of having to marry off an underage girl to be able to obtain a diary and, and, and survive. We also have been able to document how even before the bans and the increasing constraints, women and girls were already the one that had less access to aid. They were the one who was systematically less consulted, uh, had much more problem accessing the aid. Uh, to give you an example, some organization had food distribution inside mosques where women do, you know, did not even have physical access, and also less access to feedback and complaint mechanism. That was an issue way before the bans. Now when it comes to organizations, uh, non-to-NGOs, what has been happening since for the past two years is an increasingly constraining uh, environment when it comes to, to gender, especially, to reaching women and girls. not just the ban before that, we've had all of the constraints on women's ability to move without a mahram uh, in terms just of like operation reaching women and girls. It culminated in December, um, last December, when we had the ban on women ed workers working for NGOs, which, let, which was later on extended to UN agencies in April. Uh, this ban on women ed workers dramatically affected our ability to deliver to the women and girl beneficiaries. Um, but not just talking about reaching women and girls, like women and workers are an integral part of our organization, IRC, CARE, but also NRC, other big NGOs, we have like around 40% of our staff women. Uh, So that also impacted, you know, like finance, procurement, human resources, not just like, you know, our women colleagues dealing specifically with women and girls. So when we heard about the ban, initially we were forced to suspend temporarily our operations. This was time for us to take stock, to understand what was the situation, and it's uh, seven months now since the ban. What has been happening is that we have been working to find ways to continue operating in Afghanistan with our women aid workers and delivering to Afghan women and girls. Uh, it has not been an easy work. It has been very challenging, but it has been possible. And today, more than six months after the ban, we are able to deliver. We are able to de- de- deliver in a principled manner with our women colleagues and to women and girls. And the different ways we have been able to do that, um, in the first months after the ban, we have been able to negotiate and obtain a nationwide exemption for wom- women aid workers in the field of health and nutrition and in the field of education. Uh, In parallel, we have been able to work to find local agreements, usually temporary, for women colleagues to be able to go to the field uh, and deliver some of the activities that are not under the sectoral exemptions. We have been able to localize more of our work, relying more on local partners. We have been able for some of the activities to rely on third parties as women are not, at least not yet, impacted um, by bans on the ability to work in the private sector. Uh, we also have been able, for example, to engage more women in the community so that they can work in complementarity with our women aid workers. So it definitely has not been an ideal situation, but we have been able to adapt our projects, adapt our ways of working to continue delivering. Um, to give you another few examples of the work we've been doing specifically on gender so care uh, we call it a, a working group inside the UN's the cluster system uh, called the um, working group is gender and humanitarian action so we also have been working a lot in support of other organizations, especially local organization to make sure um, that we are able to offer guidance training minimum standards to have gender responsive programming um, So all that to say that while it's been challenging, it definitely has not been impossible to continue reaching women and girls. It does take much more time, energy, and resources to do that, because that involves much more engagement and negotiation. That involves making sure that the women colleagues have access, for example, to laptops and batteries and solar panels to work from home. That involves, you know, like a range of, of kind of measures we have had to take. Uh, and the problem that, uh, that my colleague Samira touched on is that Uh, We are now faced with kind of like a double burden. Not only do we have to adapt our programming, uh, we also are faced with a a funding gap. As of this morning, I checked OCHA's website. Uh, The humanitarian response plan is funded at uh, 14.8%, and we are in July. So the biggest challenge actually became for our organization the fact that we are currently facing uh, funding cuts that affect our ability to continue delivering uh, on the ground. Maybe just to finish, I'll, I'll mention a couple of, of statistics as well. Um, as part of the cluster system, as you know, there are seven thematic clusters. Um, six out of seven mentioned that right now the biggest issue uh, is the funding gap. Number two being the constraints imposed at de facto authorities. The only cluster that is suffering more from de facto authorities policy is a protection cluster as it deals with child protection, uh, gender-based violence, etc. Um, Another one, um, while we as international NGO have been suffering from funding gap, um, it's really local organisations, especially women-led organisations, that have been suffering much more uh, from this funding gap. We have, um, under the GIHA working group, we have a study coming out next month, specifically looking at women-led organization, and we asked them what were their main challenges at the moment, and the number one was lack of funding for 54% of them. Safety, security of staff, and challenges in terms of, of uh, delivering only came at number two and number three in terms of the challenges. Um, since the ban, only a third of them, 43%, have been able to access new funding. Uh, it has been an issue, um, most of them have been kind of surviving based on existing funding or just were forced to um, to stop operations entirely. Um, so maybe just to finish. The situation that we've been describing to us is really like a double punishment. On the one hand, they have to deal with the constraints imposed by the de facto authorities. And on the others, they are not able to access new funding. And so we really have this feeling of of being doubly punished. And and this is having a huge impact on the ability to support Afghan women and girls. Thanks.
1: Thank you, and, and thanks to all panelists for bringing up uh, quite uh, important and daunting issues. And uh, I would just again reiterate uh, how uh, important and difficult, and actually challenging, but also it sounds like rewarding your work is in terms of trying to meet basic needs in Afghanistan. I guess I'd first like to tease out a little more the funding gap. We know the, the we we know the. Uh, uh we know that there are shortfalls we know that the UN appeal is always overstated and and they're quite happy if they get 50 60 percent of what they ask for uh, but what I understand is that the, at the moment the prospect are cut funding being cut in half and I'm just wondering maybe uh, Samira and then Melissa if you can you, you highlighted that a bit but but really what does it mean or if you want to put it on the more positive side if there were an additional, you know, X amount of money—ten million, a hundred million—for your organizations, what more would you be able to do in the current situation and facing the various constraints? So maybe first, uh, Samira. Euro- sure.
0: Well, we're currently in a situation where we can't even meet the. The, the levels that we were meeting last year, um, as Melissa mentioned, the humanitarian response plan is only 15% funded, and we're in the middle of the year right now. Um, WFP has recently announced that they there will be 8 million Afghans that will not be receiving food assistance due to these funding cuts. At the same time, you know, if we are to receive additional funding, we we're all looking at ways of implementing programming that addresses some of that, those drivers of humanitarian needs, looking into longer-term sustainable programming, economic livelihood programming. One of the challenges that we are facing right now is with regards to development funding. Humanitarian assistance can only do so much. It's a Band-Aid solution. Development funding is not coming in at the levels that it should be. Um, Right now, for example, if you look at women-led CSOs, as Melissa mentioned, these are the civil society organizations that were instrumental in the so-called gains of the last 20 years. Over 90% of them have shut down or are partially operational because they have lost funding over the course of the last two years. Because the funding that goes to these organizations is considered development funding and not humanitarian assistance. And we're not talking large numbers. Uh, A five-woman organization in Daikundi or in Ruhr that contributes not only to the livelihoods of their family but to creating space for women Often needs five ten thousand dollars a year to sustain themselves, but that funding has stopped as of August fifteenth, twenty twenty one. There are mechanisms uh, in place that can be helpful and have been helpful over the course of the last two years, if not the great, you know, the last twenty two years. The Afghanistan Reconstruction Trust Fund is one of those mechanisms. Um, for response that has been helpful. It's been a mechanism through which health sector and education sector workers have been paid. But we need to expand um, the ARTF to look into, you know, supporting longer term sustainable livelihood programming, climate smart agriculture programming. Afghanistan is one of the countries that is worst affected by climate change, yet contributes the least in terms of carbon emissions. We have faced drastic flooding over the course of the last two years. We have faced droughts that are impacting farmers. We are currently, the North is in the midst of a locust outbreak that is going to impact the harvest come the fall. And all of this is just going to exacerbate the humanitarian concerns that we are trying to address. So I'll stop there and then. Maybe Uh, Melissa and let me first
1: just jump in because (laughs) this humanitarian versus development drives me crazy. As as some people in the room are aware, you could actually do basic development under the humanitarian name. So, my my humble suggestion to donors and others is, if if development if the word development is not possible, then do some development under the humanitarian, which was certainly done in the 1990s, uh, very small amounts and conceivably could be done now, but your your points are well taken. Uh, I'm just sort of uh, at a loss because uh, I think Khaled and I both think development funding, development is needed, however funded, yet it doesn't seem to, I mean, that seems to be almost the red line for, for many donors. Uh, please go ahead. Sorry.
0: You know, I think when we talk about development funding, there is this, assumption that it means large-scale infrastructure programming, that it means transmission lines or hydropower dams. It's not maintenance of small roads from villages connecting people to health facilities. It's not building of washrooms in education centers. That's also development funding, but the word is very scary to the donor community.
1: Thank you. Uh, if- Forgive me, but maybe I'll just ask Khalid to chime in on this issue of, of development needs, and then we'll go uh, to you, Melissa.
2: Yeah, I, I think humanitarian assistance is not a long-term solution. Uh, you need to have development. And right now, with the private sector paralyzed, the only feasible source would be for, for donors to, to have the development activities. As Bill said, maybe under the guise of humanitarian, um, a lot of investment that was happening in the last twenty years, all the infrastructure, to what Samira alluded, they need maintenance. Uh, how would you maintain those so that at least population have access to, as as you said, to health clinics or, or uh, other facilities to integrate markets? Uh, it, it is important. Uh, I, I think. It's, it's do, doable. I think it's important to look at how money is spent rather than just the quantities. Uh, you could do two different, completely different uh, outcomes with the same amount of money, given what channels do you use, how do you source goods, whether it's locally or whether you just purchase, for example, wheat from across the border in Uzbekistan and dump them in markets distorting things, but uh, incentives for farmers in Afghanistan, you know, they have different uh, uh, different ways of doing it. Uh, so I, I think development is, is possible. There are means if there is the will within the international community with international uh, financial institutions uh, to be a bit more, I would say, courageous and aggressive rather than handing everything over to the UN and say this is your responsibility now to, to do whatever you do with it. Uh, I think there are mechanisms well established, for example in the World Bank, to do direct funding of, of Care International or, or other NGOs uh, rather than to have to go through a UN agency that would save a lot of overhead costs. Uh, those, those are all, all possibilities.
1: Thank you, Khaled. Uh, That gets into the cost effectiveness issue, which I'm sure the panelists have some views on. But uh, Melissa, you've been patient. Maybe you can weave in some of this, what additional funding can do, particularly in the areas that you're focusing on. And maybe also, if you want to take it on, are there ways to improve the effectiveness uh, given, particularly, I mean, uh, effectiveness from donor side too, uh, in terms of uh, either requirements, uh, costs, etc.
3: Sure. Thanks. No, I mean, I fully, fully agree with uh, with both of the my panelists. Um, what the funding gaps mean right now is simply that we have to stop projects we've had in several provinces. Have to stop a mobile health team or food distribution or cash distribution. You know, finding ways to. To, for the staff to go on the other project, but it's it's becoming really really challenging um, for us, and and I fully agree with the need to like find ways to go back to more sustainable projects. Um, I think the concerns we have right now is for the past two years we've been able to avert a famine with the support of the donors. The donors have been very mobilized. The U.S. government be, be, being the main one. Um, but the concerns we have is in the absence of um more longer term projects, we are kind of stuck in this loop of just emergency aid and in one or three or five years we might still be just distributing aid that prevents people from dying of hunger, but not actually building anything sustainable that allows them to not be dependent on humanitarian aid. And, and like Samira mentioned, like some of the projects we, we're looking at, for example, in, in, in the livelihood fields, are very, very small scale. We're talking really about being able to distribute poultry to families or helping them set up like a, a kitchen garden so that they can grow, you know, their own food. We're talking about like tailoring embroidery training. So this is, this is really, really small scale, but this is really a, a way for us to make sure that, um, that the aid we're distributing is sustainable for, for the Afghan families and
1: i'll stop there could i just uh, uh kind of uh, follow up and ask you a little bit more about this i mean are, is the work on gender particularly like like you're talking about like some of the livelihood issues making sure uh food gets delivered to to female-headed households or or other, making sure women are not just completely left out of, of say, basic food or other kind of livelihood assistance, or are there anything specific you can do on the gender front in terms of, uh, I hate to use the word rights because I'm I'm so unqualified on it, but rights kinds of issues. The one, the the one area I guess you said where Taliban restrictions are 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 worse than the funding gap.
3: So I mean, we have been able to continue continue doing. For example, we have a very large women economic empowerment project. The way we have had to do is adapt the ways we are we are implementing this project. For example, now we are focusing more on livelihoods that women can do from home. For example, so more embroidery and tailoring and cooking than public-facing businesses. For example, so we also have been have had to go back to the donors, go back to the women beneficiaries, and really listen to what is it that is possible right now and what is it that they they want. And for us, this investment in women economic empowerment is really key because this is what allows them to have more decision-making power inside their family, inside their community, and it's also an argument that works really well with de facto authorities being able to show the economic positive impact that these programs can have. Um, We have found quite counterproductive uh, when we talk about when we talk with de facto authorities about these projects to get a rights approach. So we're really talking more about the benefit for the community, the benefit for the children, the benefit for the families, for the health situation. So it's really something that has been very successful that we are able to continue doing and that we are now really looking to at least maintain and if possible, expand.
1: And uh, and is the funding for that part of it adequate or, or could more funding be provided that would allow you to scale it up more?
3: I mean, when you compare uh, a portfolio before and after August 2021, we went from like 70% development livelihood and 25% humanitarian to exactly the contrary. Now 75% of a project are pure humanitarian and 25 is development. And um, I think it's been quite challenging for some donors because they are themselves under huge pressure uh, with very limited resources, not limited, but you know more pressure definitely in terms of the funding and the number of crises have been increasing that they have to respond to it's been harder to make the case um when they have to kind of choose between life saving assistance and these kind of longer term projects so it's definitely something we're trying to explain and and push it's very hard for us to you know the life saving assistance has to be like um kind of the most urgently, but like we also have to. Kind of like there's no point in, in 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 doing all of this emergency assistance if we're not able to also have this conversation about how do we actually find ways to get out of this uh, of this humanitarian crisis.
1: Thank you. Uh, I think this uh, we could have this productive conversation among ourselves uh, and continue. And I'll resist asking too many more questions. I think uh, Matt is kindly collecting uh, questions from the group. But let me just throw out probably again for the ground, what Khalid raised this cost-effectiveness issue. Let me be a little bit. I mean, you're talking about delivering. Let me be a little bit provocative and forgive me. Uh, you're talking about delivering food assistance to women. Is that UN money or is it from elsewhere from VHA? Are there are there ways the procedures could be made improved and made simpler and avoid perhaps? I don't know what you want to call it—cascading overheads by different agencies. Which you're maybe the last one, and and you need uh, you need to cover your costs within Afghanistan. But there are many many others. So, uh, without maybe being too specific, but are, are there some uh, some obvious issues both of you or either of you faces uh, in terms of, or, 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 or more positively are are there ways you see that the cost effectiveness of your your own assistance could be improved by either different procedures and we haven't even talked about the banking constraints yet and the cash shipments, but but anything you'd like to 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 raise in this as as a suggestion for for this Washington audience. So maybe first Samira and then Melissa.
0: Sure. I mean even UN funding does come from alternative sources as well, right? So it's not their independent funding. It's it is coming from different donor capitals. Um, One of the ways in which some of the, you know, aid can be more effectively utilized in Afghanistan is decreasing some of these layers that we're having. I know it's been a difficult time period for the international community having shifted from, we were advocating for a lot of on-budget assistance, but on-budget assistance to entirely off-budget bilateral assistance to the UN or directly to NGOs. As you mentioned, one of the challenges is the ability to get cash into the country. Yeah. Um, we are having cash flown directly into the country, and then that comes to us. One of the challenges then comes. F- the bigger challenge isn't for INGOs. I would say it is for national organizations. For them to access funding, it has become increasingly difficult. Yeah. Um, for the 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 mechanisms, the, the, the compliance, the requirements that are needed to access funding in the current environment with increasing monitoring, with increasing scrutiny on every dollar that we spend in Afghanistan, it makes it that much harder for a local organization to access funding. Um, I think we need to, as a, I think the international community does need to look at how can we streamline that process. INGOs implement over 70% and national NGOs implement over 70% of the UN's programming right now in Afghanistan. There are ways to directly and bilaterally fund international organizations who can then um, work with our local partners. And disproportionately, it is women-led organizations that are struggling the most in accessing this funding in the current format.
1: Melissa.
3: Thank you. I mean, I don't have much to add. I fully agree with uh, with Samira. Um, we really see that in the project donors, you know, uh, contracting a UN agency, contracting an international NGOs, contracting a national NGOs, and at each of these layers, you get overhead costs uh, that are being kind of um, spent. Um it's really been one of our, our big focus, especially on gender, like for example, care in Afghanistan. we have six local partners who are women led and so we've really been working also on the capacity building not just for the project but making sure they actually are able to access international funding themselves, uh, which is very challenging, everything related to you know due diligence audits, all of the reporting we have to do to the donors uh now, so it's definitely also being one of the main asks we've been pushing here in Washington, asking for more flexible and direct funding to local organizations who are able to better deliver or uh, more cost-efficient and also are better embedded in the communities and know the needs and the ways of delivering um, sometimes better international NGOs and UN agencies. Thanks.
1: Thanks. Uh, to me, some of this seems like win-win uh, aspects. I mean, donor funding is constrained, let's, let's make the most effective, cost-effective and effective use of it possible. Uh, so thank you for the forbearance of the audience. Uh, we've been having this panel discussion, now I'll, I'll, we'll, uh, we'll uh, ask some of the panelists to respond to, to some questions that have been raised, and uh, apologies in advance that uh, we probably won't be able to get to all questions but uh, let's uh, start now. Uh, the first question is, 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 interestingly, and it's not from somebody in USIP, but it's a peace-building question, and uh, how do you, you know, with this humanitarian and development uh, issue, the development sort of lack and shortfall, the humanitarian situation, is there any way to pursue peace building as as a related and uh, as an agenda, as part of this conflict reduction. Uh, We certainly know that the big war is over, but there are lots of local conflicts uh, uh, that come up from time to time. The Taliban have been very harsh and, from their perspective, I think, successful in in controlling the country. But uh, a lot is happening, and maybe maybe starting this time. Let's go again with Samira and then Melissa. Just in, in the local level, do you find ways to ease conflict? Is, is there any ways to inject the peace building uh, uh, issue into some of your work? And, and again, let me stress, this is, this is not my question. This is not USIP asking this question. It's from uh, ICAW.
0: Well. You know, we, we don't work on peace building programming at the International Rescue Committee in Afghanistan. Our main programming, as has been discussed, is in the areas of life-saving response, but also some development work um, addressing livelihood concerns. I think before we can talk about the peace building question, we have to address the engagement elephant in the room. Um, in order to do peace building, you have to engage with the authorities. Um, there is no way to do peace building without engagement. And I think oftentimes, especially here in, in D.C., um, there is this perception that engagement means collaboration, and that's certainly not the case. Um, there are 40 million Afghans that still live inside Afghanistan, engaging on a daily basis with the Taliban, um, whether that is driving down the street through a checkpoint, whether that is paying taxes on your salary, whether that is getting you know, necessary IDs and paperwork. We engage flying into the airport, we will be engaging with the Taliban in a couple weeks or next week for Melissa going into Afghanistan. We have to engage with them to implement our programming to, to be able to get access for our female staff to go to work. This is all forms of engagement. Um, so I think we need to really drill down into what we, we think engagement is, and how can we expand on this to better address the needs of the Afghan people.
1: Thank you. Very good point about engagement, and I, I would certainly emphasize that from my own economic perspective I think organizations like the World Bank the IMF and others need to be engaged without recognition without necessarily direct financial support but engagement is is really critical and and you tied it in with peace building so maybe you're a peace builder too uh, Melissa
3: yeah no I fully agree I mean it is something we do on a on a daily basis I was in Paktia two weeks ago I went to meet with a local deputy director of economy I asked, you know like can I can I meet with my woman colleague can we come to the office and we find we find ways to 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 find solutions together especially when we focus on the humanitarian situation we all have the same interest which is we need to make sure that the Afghan population can get some uh, can get humanitarian aid so we are having this dialogue at local level at national level um it it is definitely sometimes challenging conversation but it's only by talking with de facto authorities that that we are able to find solutions uh, especially in terms of of access in terms of delivery of aid
1: i there's a related question uh which i'll also ask and it's it's an important question i think particularly in in donor capitals but also first i mean are you facing any constraints uh, in terms of your organization's engagement? And perhaps even more important than that, if, if you're not facing too many constraints, how how do you feel that the, uh, particularly the UN, which is based there and is is uh, has a mandate to engage with authorities, are they supporting the kind of work you're doing? Are they helpful, or or are they sort of uh, whatever absent?
0: Um, I think, you know, for, for our organizations, the only game in town for the last two years has been humanitarian. So we have been forced to engage from day one, um, to reach as many clients, reach as as much of the population as we can. So we, you know, we, our, our staff are from the communities that they serve, right? They, some of the, Authorities are from the communities that we are serving. Those interpersonal relationships have been key for us um, in terms of engagement. We have been meeting with authorities at all levels. I have met with authorities at all level from the district level to the the provincial to the capital level. Um, Sustained and continued dialogue has been key to allow us to continue to implement our programming in the country. In terms of whether or not other agencies have that same sort of reach, um, again, most of their programming is implemented by us. So we are the ones actually, for the most part, in the communities getting these exemptions, implementing programming, reaching um, those who are the most vulnerable across the country. So that has situated us, I would say, in a way where um, it's easier to have those difficult conversations. That's not to say it's, it's been easy overall. You know, these restrictions and constraints are there. It is a very difficult operating environment, but we are trying to look for as many innovative and creative ways to, to get around some of this.
1: Thank you, and, and Melissa, maybe for you also, the same question, but pushing it more. I mean, when you run into problems, do you get support from uh, from, I, I guess it would be, mainly be the UN, they're based there, although there are a few donor offices also in Kabul. Do, I mean, do you feel you're adequately supported or you might need more support?
3: So especially since the ban, there's been really a push for us to to engage with de facto authorities as a united humanitarian community. It has been led by the humanitarian coordinator. Um, and so he has been leading on behalf of the humanitarian community to go negotiate exemptions to address access constraints. And so it definitely has been one of the points that allowed us to address some of the some of the constraints. Um, to give you an example, there has been an issue in the province of, of Hor for the past few months. And we have been able to respond as, as as a united humanitarian community by suspending, for example, to give enough space and time for the humanitarian coordinator to go engage and negotiate and find a solution for all of the organisation to then resume uh, working once the you know once the constraints had been had been addressed. Um, maybe another point that I previously touched on a little bit is is finding angles and ways that allows us to have a constructive dialogue with de facto authorities. So, for example. Uh, When we're talking about air delivery to women, when we're talking about women's economic economic empowerment again, not or even the bans, not taking the angle of women's rights, which automatically kind of like shuts down the conversation, but really talking about the benefits that everyone uh, in the country has from these programs, from this engagement, whether it's in terms of economic development, whether it's in terms of, you know, like the taxes that are paid from salaries or women uh, economic activities um, and all of the positive uh, impact this has on the communities and the families.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, I'll turn to Khaled for this question, particularly since he's he's been in the U.S. recently, but uh, as we all know, I think there are, concerns about aid helping the Taliban. And I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about that aid and, and broadening it to include other things like the ARTF, IMF support, uh, possibly even the reserves, which everybody talks about endlessly. Are, are there ways that, I, I mean, is it realistic to, of, to think that aid can completely avoid helping the Taliban or are there kind of ways it, it, it can be handled that that would at least minimize that.
2: Yep. So the, the the short answer is no, it's not possible to fully uh, safeguard aid from going into Taliban's. It has been going in the last, you know, during the 20 years of Republic, they would have their informal taxation on uh, NGOs to to trade all of it. and. Uh, I assume it would uh, continue until there is aid, but but there are ways in which you could um, uh, minimize this. Uh, I think starting with and and directly, but a very important point is on on accountability and reporting. You, know, you cannot find a single consolidated report on how much aid has been spent in the last two years in Afghanistan you have to go to individual un uh, agency sites and you would have to compile it but then you would have different timelines and you, you it's it's impossible to get a one uh, figure uh, so starting with, with with that you know when you have that that situation even for donors who are not present in afghanistan but giving a lot of aid like the us government uh, it's it's impossible to to hold un uh, uh, agencies, international NGOs, national NGOs accountable to to anything. So to, I think a baseline would be to make sure that there is timely, accurate reporting and consolidated reporting on 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 uh, all of this. But there are mechanisms through which you could uh, channel it. You know, well, I, I spoke a bit earlier, and Samira elaborated on uh, ARTF and the World Bank doing direct. Uh, contracts with these international NGOs—it happens everywhere. It, they don't have to go through a government. If there is no recognized government, you can you you can use uh, direct contracting. You don't have to go through a UN agency that then has its own mechanism. So you will add complications over complication. Um, so there are there are ways uh, through which aid uh, could be spent better. Uh, Engaging communities is, is important. You know, that's, you're not accountable only to the donors, but the people to whom the aid is intended. Uh, more engagement with those communities brings a lot of uh, transparency and and uh, acts as, as a mechanism where a effectiveness of that aid or humanitarian uh, uh, initiative is, is, is engaged. There are, on, overall engagement i think and just to be a bit of critical of my previous employers uh, the world bank and ifis have been a bit uh, too cautious you know you can't claim to to have your mission as uh, eradicating poverty and then 30 million people are starving and you just uh, think it suffices to 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 uh, channel funds through ARTF to UN, and then that's your, your responsibility is, is, is over. You, you need to engage, as, as Samira said, I believe in engagement with Taliban as much as it might not be the, the ideal outcome. You need to engage to, to put the pressure, keep the pressure constantly on, on them, and, and, and then be in the country. Uh, do the tough work of going, sitting down with them, uh, making sure you know some some of the programs go ahead as as you intend them, rather than just making a transfer from Washington D.C. to a, a UN account in New York, and and then your responsibility is done. I think also for overall economic surveillance, IMF has a role to play, and they have they bring a uh, a, a set of uh, skills that no other institutions have. You're not as, uh, dealing with with a simple humanitarian uh, situation, you know, it's a complex uh, economic situation that needs to look at fundamentals of uh, economics, you know, and you have to to look into them. Where is the engine of growth? What can be done? How can you engage private sector into uh, into this this all to 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 improve it? So I think you know that there are ways, but it needs a bit more initiative, more engagement more uh, on the ground presence by, by the big actors.
1: Thank you, Khaled. Uh, a more technical question, I think, uh, related to uh, supporting private businesses. Is this, uh, Can you do it under humanitarian business? This, this relates to the whole point of private businesses and women-led businesses, which you've talked about. Uh, can you do that under humanitarian funding? or is there some way to do it? And also, how do the uh, Taliban authorities uh, de- uh, react? You'd already addressed this a little bit, Melissa, but uh, maybe you know when you're talking about women's economic empowerment, women-led businesses, women-led, I guess businesses, because women-led NGOs, by definition, are not allowed. To, because they're not allowed to be employed right, by NGOs. So maybe Melissa first and uh, Samira on this issue. And one other technical question, sorry to throw them all at you, but I realize we're, we're soon running out of time. Uh, has the ban on foreign currency, use of foreign currency by the Taliban impacted any of your activities, particularly direct cash uh, interventions? And if so, are there workarounds? So maybe Melissa first. Sorry, that's a bunch of questions, but these have been very good questions from the participants.
3: Thank you, and, and I'll try to be brief. Um, on the private businesses support, especially looking at women businesses, uh, I think we're quite limited, both in terms of the scope of the project and and, and the size of them. Um, and we're also not working on the macroeconomic level. We can only help the woman who is setting up her business. And what I see a lot when I meet with them is like they're very happy about the support. They got the training. They got, for example, like the machine to do the embroidery and all. But the economy is in a stage where they don't have clients anymore, for example. So we are able to kind of like do our part to support these small businesses. But then until the economy is supported and is able to restart, they came, they went from like having 10 clients a week before August 2020 want to now having maybe one to two clients uh, a week so they are not also able to um, to sustain themselves in that sense then when it comes to the um, to the foreign currency um, it was very challenging for NGOs to operate in the first few months after the regime change and i think there was a lot of frustration at the time because the donors were very supportive we had a humanitarian crisis we were able to respond but the p- main problem we had at the time was how can we actually you know get cash into the country to to implement all of these all of these pro- programs um, since then the situation really improved uh, especially when we're looking at ofac um, sanctions exemption when we're looking at un sanction exemption as well for humanitarian work so in that sense um, that coupled with the U.S. UN cash breach uh, allowed us to go back to more or less uh, you know normal operation when it comes to cash flow payment of salaries of vendors and, and all of that so so work done uh, on that front by the US government by the UN has been very impactful. Uh, um, quick quick
1: follow-up on that and then Samira that, uh, do you actually get funds in cash dollars or in uh, Afghanis and do you distribute them to Beneficiaries in Afghanis are cash dollars?
3: Um, Through the UN cash bridge, we get it in uh, US dollars through AIB bank. Mm -hmm. And then we are able, it depends, you know, like for some of the salaries, the payment would be in USD. And when we do cash distribution, it does have to be in in Afghani. I won't go into details because that's not my area of expertise. Uh, Samira, over to you.
0: Maybe, maybe Samira.
3: Not my area of
0: expertise either, but I could touch up on it a bit. Um, I'll, I'll go to the first question in terms of the private sector. Um, you know, d- Due to the economic situation and government restrictions, surprisingly, we've seen the Afghan women's labor participation doubling um, during the course of the last two years. Um, more women, according to this recent World Bank survey, more women are working right now uh, but it is in precarious uh forms of employment in irregular employment um there are ways there's opportunities again and that's because more and more of the population has fallen into poverty more and more women are forced to leave the homes to go out and work um, to try to put food on the table um, there are ways to support the private sector beyond you know the smaller scale examples that melissa was giving but we have women led businesses or women-owned businesses that are medium and large taxpayers in the country. They employ thousands of women across the country. Their biggest impediment to their the success of their business and to continuing to grow and support women are the banking challenges right now? They are unable to do SWIFT transfers. They are unable to purchase goods and import and export at, at the scale that they should be able to. Um, so, without addressing the bigger economic concerns, there's, you know, again, it's a band-aid solution when we're talking about supporting the private sector. Um, and in terms of the cash shipments, again, we it's like Melissa said, we receive it in USD. We it's a mixed bag. Sometimes we pay our contractors or employees in, in USD, but and then distributions vary um, with regards to that. And in terms of ban on foreign currency, we're still utilizing and using um, USD across the country, as was the case prior to 2021. You can go to the shop, pay with USD, and get apps back. Um, one of the challenges that we did face uh, during the last two years was was the issue of the Afghani banknotes, um, and the U.S. government was very helpful in facilitating and allowing for the payment of the banknotes, which were printed in Europe, um, to come back to, to to come into Afghanistan, which really um, I think did improve the economic situation, particularly for women and girls. As a woman, when you go to the shop, they give you the worst of the notes. Um, and if you're a man, you get the better quality notes. So we're you know it did that was also having an impact on um, the purchasing power of women uh, and girls in the country.
1: Thanks, yet a, yet another uh, aspect where women and girls are disproportionately affected, which I think people wouldn't normally think of, but the banknotes quality is a serious issue. Uh, I hope that uh, they continue to issue. New ones, and again, this is an area where I think Khaled mentioned you, you need a macro policy, you need a monetary policy. In this kind of deep recession, uh, horrible recession, uh, the 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 normal prescription would be to issue more Afghani money within reason, not letting the exchange rate get out of control. So, so these are the kind of things where which actually would be helpful and uh, certainly having enough notes i i think there's still probably problems because that was only one big shipment and and now there there need to be more but replacing the old notes and modestly increasing the money supply are obvious things uh yeah so many issues and i realize we're pretty close to out of time Uh, you've been patient uh let let me take a question about what would it take for the taliban to finance social uh social services and the very good example of course is is the provincial hospitals where as an emergency i think icrc picked up that but it had been previously paid by the ministry of public health as part of the national budget uh, Khalid could correct me if i'm wrong and so so as an emergency me- mechanism icrc took that over now of course the uh with money shortage icrc is not going to be necessarily uh continuing that and uh the obvious thing would it be go back to the ministry of public health like it was before august 2021 Uh, apparently that's been refused uh you can debate about the taliban budget they spend about the same on security and defense as the previous government did but that's that was a war then right And, and and now there's not so much open fighting so but i guess my response to this question which is a very good one is no I mean, there's there's almost nothing that can be done to get the, China, the Taliban to fund social ser- services that I can think of. Their their uh, strategy is to to preserve their control, uh, to to re- maintain unified as a movement. And they've done, you know, they've done the right things for an authoritarian regime: control of security forces, control of revenue, which, as Khalid said, they've taken over. And we didn't talk about it. They've actually collected. About as much as the previous government, which is really an accomplishment in in a weak economy, they've uh, really restricted capital flight. So these dollars coming in, they're not all going out of Afghanistan like they like happened under the previous government. They're they're ending up, and and the Taliban are actually having some reserves, even though the main reserves have been frozen. And so so they've done a lot of uh, good things from their own. Perspective of an authoritarian regime, and and not including necessarily caring for their own people. Uh, sorry, that will be my lone non-moderator intervention. But maybe uh, in in the same order that we went, uh, I'm realizing the time is out. But maybe call it any f- final points, and then Samira and Melissa.
2: Yeah, just just to conclude, I think this session should have uh, provided you with statistics and, and, and reasoning why Afghanistan still matters and it's important because the sheer number of people suffering uh, is too big to ignore for the world and I hope there is continued support to Afghanistan and there is continued assistance in the uh, short term on uh, humanitarian but also development because right now there is no other mechanism that could substitute for for the humanitarian assistance that is provi- being provided. Had it not been for the humanitarian assistance, despite its shortcomings, the situation could have been much, much worse. Uh, and uh, in the bigger scheme of things, in the bigger scheme of uh, global economy and, and international aid, uh, four or five billion dollars is not a big big amount uh, for the world to, to be able to pledge to Afghanistan. And I hope that that it it continues. Thank
0: you. Um, just to add on to what Khaled was just saying, um, we you know we, we talked about the humanitarian crisis. The U.S. government, in particular, has been generous in its funding over the course of the last two years, despite the political limitations that are in place. They have allowed us to reach, as I said, more clients than we have ever reached before. They have prevented – this funding has prevented a famine in the country, but it needs to be sustained, it needs to be continued, and we need to look at alternative mechanisms of funding um, and development funding, as we alluded to throughout this conversation. But none of that is possible unless we have a a a path forward in terms of dialogue, continued engagement with the authorities. As actors on the ground, we have to do that. But there needs to be further engagement with the authorities through whether it's the World Bank, the IMF, different institutions, diplomatic missions, whatever it may be, to to make it easier for us as actors on the ground um, to deliver aid in a principled manner to reach as many Afghans in need as possible. Um, so thank you, I'll just stop there.
3: Thank you. Um, maybe to summarize the, the pressure on, uh, on the Afghan population and humanitarian organization is, is huge at the moment from the donors, from the communities, from the de facto authorities. Um, and we really, at like, like my colleagues mentioned at a time where there's really a responsibility for the international community to recommit to the Afghan population, especially Afghan women and girls, and making sure that they do not suffer because of some of the policies taken by, by de facto authorities. So it's really crucial today that donors are able to commit. Um, when we're looking at the U.S. government in particular, we do know that um, whatever the U.S. government will be deciding will influence also other decisions by other donors. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Bill. Over to you.
1: Thanks very much. And I, I won't try to summarize this uh, very valuable meeting. Um, i believe the uh, recording will be available on usip's website so uh, others and outside participants uh, can look at it uh, again later i mean i think one a a few themes that came out of this are engagement 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 uh not talking about recognition or or financial uh, support directly or anything like that but just engaging is essential uh, maintaining aid. I would slightly caveat that with my own view, that try to have a gradual decline in aid rather than a sudden one. The sudden one happened in August 2021, and it took enormous efforts to prevent a, a very serious famine. And the situation now will be even greater, even worse. Khaled briefly mentioned, and we we didn't really cover it, but the Taliban's opium ban is now like another economic shock, and so if if you have one billion shock there, one billion in reduction in aid, you're going to again plunge the economy into basically what was at risk in August 2021, and and also to shift the balance of funding, whatever funding is available. Uh, Away from pure humanitarian toward development, and I would argue for creative approaches in this way, try to reduce overheads, basically change the way of doing business and uh, I think uh, I think there are uh, there are some grounds to be hopeful. Uh, there was one question which we didn't take up in the panel because it it, it was so contrarian but uh, but uh, with the, 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 there are uh, there, there are possibilities. I'll just mention one is that uh, IDA funding from the World Bank, Afghanistan's normal access to that would be in the range of 200 to $300 million a year. Every year since August 2021, it's been losing that money. And I think that that is something that should be addressed along with ARTF and, and uh, it changed an additional approach to ARTF. So I think there are some positive potentials as uh, I believe all the panelists said, uh, Khalid particularly emphasized, there there needs to be a little bit of of courage and engagement from the donor side as well to support these people who are really doing amazing work on the ground in Afghanistan. So let's close just with a, a, a round of applause to our panelists and to the NGOs working in Afghanistan.
0: Thank you for listening to this event.